Thank you, David. We are um, coming towards the end of our study in First Peter. I think we will have uh, one more week, and then we will, um, Lord willing, um, jump all the way over to Second Peter, uh, which makes it a little easier. Um, but as we as we open up our scripture this morning, and as we as we look here towards the end of this book in chapter, this letter in chapter 5, we know if you've been with us that Peter is writing here to Christians. And he's writing to Christians who have been under persecution and who are under suffering. And we know that that persecution and suffering is, is just going to continue to increase. And so Peter is writing to encourage them. He's writing to encourage these men and women who have put their faith and their hope in Jesus Christ. And Peter, as he's writing in chapter 5, um, he started to lay out this metaphor that we see play through the verses uh, that were read this morning. And I think that sometimes one of the things that we do, I know that I've been guilty of this in reading this passage, is that we just take the metaphor of Satan being a roaring lion and we kind of take that in its own context without looking at the broader context that is given to us by Peter. And so let's start this morning by going back just to get in our minds this metaphor, this analogy that Peter is laying out for us and make sure that we it's, it's really simple, but make sure we have everything laid out as we jump into our text this morning. So if we go back to verse two, uh, Peter says, shepherd the flock of God. And if you were with us, if you remember this uh, sermon, which I'm sure all of you do, uh, that we said that really a better translation of this would be shepherd the sheep. And so Peter is addressing the elders of the church and he's calling them shepherds. And then he's saying that the people in the church, the, the Christians are sheep. Notice, notice the sheep of God. And we talked that the shepherd is an under shepherd here. Uh, in fact, in verse four, it tells us, and when the chief shepherd, that's Jesus, appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. And so you have elders, you have the flock, Christians, elders, and above them, the chief shepherd, Christ, and that we all belong to God, that the flock is his. We all, if you have put your faith and your hope in Christ, that you belong to the flock of God. Even uh, recently, this last week, Damon uh, had been leading our Bible studies for our staff. In our staff meetings, we have a Bible study, and we're looking at First Peter and staff meeting as well. And Damon has taken us uh, through First Peter. Uh, and this last week, as he was talking about these uh, first five verses of chapter five, he went all throughout the Old and New Testament. And this imagery of being God's uh, sheep and God being our shepherd is just all through his word in his Bible and his, his word, our Bible given to us by him. So let's continue and look at this metaphor. And Peter adds another piece to it. So you have the flock, the sheep, the shepherds, the 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 ultimate shepherd. And then there's a lion in verse eight. Be of sober spirit, be on alert, your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so we have Satan, uh, and, and in this metaphor, Satan is a lion, 
And he's prowling around seeking someone to devour. He is sniffing around the flock of God, seeking to devour some. Now, I want to ask a question this morning. Um, And the question that I want to ask first is this. What is the roar? It says Satan is roaring. What is the roar? And I think this is very important for us to define. Sometimes in looking at metaphors in the Bible, we can take things too far. We can, um, we, can, we can put things in the text that aren't there. But I want you to notice something, and this is very important for us to distinguish. Look, it says that Satan is roaring in verse 8. He's prowling around like a roaring lion. And, and it says, but resist him, in verse 9, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren. Verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And what I want you to see this morning, this morning, that the roaring of Satan is suffering and persecution. I think this is important because sometimes, as we look at this, we think that suffering and persecution are the devouring Right? Devour. He'll kill you. But what's important that I want you to understand this morning is that Satan's goal is not to kill you. What happens to Christians when they die? We go to glory. We we receive our faith becomes sight. We see Jesus face to face. We are with him forever and eternally. And we can't even imagine what heaven is going to be like. We receive our reward. Satan's goal is not to send you there so that you can glorify God forever. That's not Satan's goal. So when it talks about devouring here, it is talking about something different. What we see is that the roaring of the lion is the persecution, is the suffering We know that these people were experiencing in Asia Minor even more and more and more suffering. And many of them did lose their lives. Peter himself, not too long after writing these letters, lost his own life. And that is the roaring, the threat of persecution, the threat of death is the roaring. The devouring is something much different. The devouring is that those who would hear the roar and who would run and who would lose faith and abandon their faith and walk away from God and walk away from faith. And we'll touch back on that here in a moment. I want you to make this connection. What happens, what happens in a believer's Mind and a believer's heart when he or she gets scared, when he or she is maybe facing persecution, when he or she is maybe uh, some doubt creeps in, what sort of things come to our mind? I think there, there are three kind of main things I think that we experience um, when, when faith and faithlessness and doubt kind of creep into our soul and to our minds and and one, I think, is that sometimes we wonder, is God even there? 
Is God even there? Um, is, is God a God that interacts um, on human terms or that interacts in our time and space? Or is he just the God of the deist, the unmoved mover who kind of just set everything into place and stands back and lets the world just kind of go? I think when we experience hard times, suffering, persecution, that is, that is something that happens within us as we question that. Another thing that I think that we question is that, is God, does God have any power in this world? Is he powerful enough to remove me from the situation that I'm in? One that you hear most frequently, I think, is that, does God even care? Does God even care that I'm going through these difficulties? And so I want to ask you a question. Those of you who were either here or listening last week, does that sound familiar? You remember what we were reminded of last week? Second half of verse 5. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God is there. He is opposing the proud, but he is giving grace to the humble. He is acting in our time and space. And those who, who place themselves in faith uh, to him, under him, humble ourselves, he gives us grace. In verse 6, therefore humble yourself under the, remember last week, the, we talked about the mighty hand of God, that God has a mighty and strong hand and that he will exalt you at the proper time. He is all powerful. And then in verse seven. He cares for you. He cares for you. And we talked about that. Our worries are to be cast upon him and not carried by us. It's fascinating to me that the answer to many of our 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 wanderings in our mind, our doubts in our mind is it's, it's here in this text as Peter then talks about Satan, the roaring lion and, and persecution coming. And so faith is humbling ourselves under God, knowing that he is mighty, that he cares, that he acts and that we cast our cares upon him. And so this is what we are. This is the position that we are to take. We are to be a faithful people that endure. And the goal and the point that we're going to see that Peter is bringing us to is that Satan is real. He is a lion. He is roaring. And we as Christians are to stand firm. Now, as we look at verse eight, it says to be of sober spirit and to be on alert. These are two imperatives. This first phrase, be of sober spirit. Uh, we see this twice in this letter. And I want to read uh, the times that they occur to you because I want you to hear um, what Peter is saying and the, the context and what it is bringing to mind the other two times that it is used. It says in chapter 1, verse 13, Therefore, prepare your mind for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So be sober. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought at a further date when Christ returns in his second coming. And then in chapter four, verse seven, notice again, you'll see the theme. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. This this other word, the other imperative um, in verse eight, where it says, be on alert. 
almost every time this is used in the New Testament, it's within the context of um, the end is near. You're living in the last days. Be alert, be awake, be sober. And what we know as Christians, and one of the things that we've talked about over and over as we've looked at this book, is that we live in this, this tension, this time where Christ has already come. Christ has already paid the price for our sins. We can put our faith and our hope and our trust in Him. And we also know that He will return. And we live in this intermediary time where Satan is alive and well, prowling around, roaring like a lion, but his doom is sure Our fate is secured in Him. And so Peter is telling us, because of this reality, stand firm. Be sober. Be alert. Be watchful. Know the times. Have your wits about you. Don't fall asleep. Don't get intoxicated on the things of this world. Don't be lured asleep thinking there is no danger. The example that I kept thinking of when I was preparing for this is that when I was about 21, I went on my first mission trip and went to the Philippines. And my dad said something really strange to me. I thought it was really strange um, because as a 21-year-old and not knowing world history very well, but he said, hey, son, listen, when you're there, my dad had been several times, he said, beware the communist. I said, okay. Are they wearing red suits? Are they all bald? What's, you know... He said, just, you know, son, beware of the communist. And so I, I thought it was strange. Uh, and as I went to the Philippines, um, uh, as I got there and um, as I walked around, I, my dad had told me that there was, uh, you know, there was a war and there were uh, uh, the old Communist Party guard. There were some of them that were left over and that they liked to cause trouble and they, they were constantly trying to cause an, an uprising. But as I was there, I didn't see any buildings that looked like they were, you know, the communist headquarters with machine guns, you know, looking to devour me. I didn't uh, I didn't see any buildings that looked like they had been destroyed in a war. I certainly didn't see anybody that looked like a communist, even though I don't know what a communist would look like. And so pretty soon in this trip, I got very comfortable. I got. You know, hey, this is good. Dad doesn't know what he's talking about. So he got very comfortable. And then I'll never forget, there was a man that came and, and talked with us, spoke with us, a Filipino man. And as he shared his testimony, he was a, he was a general in the army. Uh, and one of his jobs uh, before he left, he became a Christian and left the military. One of his jobs was that he was charged, he and his men were charged to go find the remaining uh, soldiers of the communist regime and to kill him. And uh, so he was telling us this. And so I began to ask questions like, oh, so they're all gone. And he said, oh, no, no, no. And he's, there was a man with him. Uh, let's say his name was George. I don't think George is a Filipino name, but I forgot his name. And he would say, well, George is actually my bodyguard. And he said, George, show Lewis your Bible. And he opened his Bible and it was a hollowed out Bible. And there was a revolver. And then he began to tell us how he didn't stay uh, at the same place for more than two nights and how he had to stagger when he actually saw his family. And the, the, one of the most eye-opening experiences that he told me was it hadn't been too long um, since I, from when I was seeing him that he had been in a building and uh, somebody broke out a window and a grenade came in. The pin had been pulled and landed right in between uh, his legs where he was sitting, and just didn't go off. As he was talking about the miracle of God, that he was still alive, 
um, uh, he told me this story. And then he took me outside of the place that we were, the compound we were staying in, and there, he started showing me the bullet holes in the compound. That unless you were looking for the bullet holes, you would have never seen them. I wouldn't have seen them because I'm just unaware of these type things. And so one of the things then, the change that occurred in me as I was there, are the things that my father told me to look out for, I started to look out for. I woke up. I was alert. The things like stay close to the group. Stay with uh, these two missionary men. Stay with... These are all things my dad told me to do. And it woke me up because all of a sudden I realized the danger that was actually there. That I had just not seen. That was right in front of me. That my perception of the world, my perception of our time there in the Philippines. um, That I had allowed myself to be lulled to sleep. And so one of the things that I want to ask you this morning as we're looking at this text is this. Do you know your enemy? Do you know your enemy? It's fascinating to me in this text. The metaphor that Peter gives us is not that Satan is hiding. Not that Satan is, uh, uh, you know, like a snake but that Satan is a lion who is roaring. Or he's prowling like a roaring lion. And I think the problem that many of us have is that we don't recognize Satan in his work. I think the readers of 1 Peter could have looked at the persecution, could have looked at what was going on, and they could have blamed all kinds of other things. They could have blamed Rome. They could have blamed uh, certain leaders. They could have blamed each other. The blame could have gone elsewhere. But Peter wants them to know that this persecution and the suffering that you are under is is coming to you at the hands of the evil one. And he's got a purpose in that. And he's seeking to devour you. And that my role as a pastor, my role as an elder, one of the elders of this church, is to point out to you the enemy that's in front of you, that's roaring, who's seeking to destroy you. This week... Uh, Josh Rogers and I uh, came to the church and watched a um, a lecture debate series and uh, it was really good and one of the really, really good talks was by Tim Keller and uh, they asked him several questions about culture and uh, he was talking about, as you've heard me mention, that he does believe that we're living in a post-Christian culture. And he said he wanted to go a step further than that and, said, and that our culture, being a post-Christian culture, that it's actually anti-Christian culture. That if you really look at the world and the way that culture is moving and everything that we're hearing out of the academy and all of the philosophical, cultural movements that we hear, that really what the, the movement is doing is dismantling any claim of truth. There is no truth. If there's no truth, then it means God is not true. God's word is not true. Anything God says is not true. And really what you see, and I think this is so wise and uh, I, I think very observant of him, is that you see that our culture around us, what it is doing, it is really, really deconstructing Christianity and attacking it at all levels and that unfortunately that many Christians in many churches are being lulled away and lulled to sleep 
by culture by adopting things that are anti-Christian. You all know this. Truth is now seen as relative. Keller points out that the mantra of our, of our day and age, really, is that um, truth is found where? From inside of us. So uh, you all have probably heard that we use words like my truth. That truth is from inside of us and that we develop what my truth is for me and then tell everybody else that you can't infringe upon my truth. Brothers and sisters, we believe that we are made in the image of God and we do bear His image and we do bear things like reasoning abilities and, 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 and other things. However, we also believe that we recognize the truth as believers as coming from outside of us, from God to us. Because as sinners, as fallen people, we need a standard and a moral and a judgment that is bigger than us coming down to us. And so we sit under truth and receive it from the Lord. The other message is completely anti-God, anti-Scripture, anti-Christ. And we see this everywhere, that our culture, even within the church, is rejecting truth. I want to read uh, some things to you, and I'm sorry that I'm going to read quite a bit. I'm going to try to do it quickly. But Abarna, uh, in 2009, um, interviewed uh, about 18, 1900 self-described Christians. And it said, 4 out of 10 Christians, 40%, strongly agreed that Satan is not a living being, but a symbol of evil. An additional 2 out of 10, 20%, said that they agree somewhat with that perspective. A minority of Christians indicated that they believe that Satan is real by disagreeing with the statement. I just found this interesting. Much like their perceptions of Satan, most Christians don't believe that the Holy Spirit is a living force. In Gallup in 2016, in one of the polls that they did um, in, in this, uh, it said that uh, Americans' belief um, in all these other than belief of God uh, is down, talking about angels, powers, principalities, demons, Satan. And it says that... Uh, uh, 72% who say they believe in angels to 61% who say they believe in the devil with 12% unsure on both. And then this. This is the culture, the culture in which we are swimming. This is written by a man named Phil Zuckerman in uh, Psychology Today. Uh, and so he is, uh, the title of the article is, was written, this was written about four or five years ago, The Devil, Seriously. And so he, he writes, Presidential candidate Ben Carson, a man who graduated with a bachelor's degree in psychology from Yale University and an MD from the University of Michigan Medical School and who worked as a leading neurosurgeon at John Hopkins Hospital, publicly declared back in a speech from 2012 his unwillingness to accept the scientific empirical evidence for Darwinian evolution which happens to be the fundamental cornerstone of the biological sciences. This is a quote from Ben Carson. I personally believe that this theory that Darwin came up with was something that was encouraged by the adversary. The well-educated doctor said, The adversary? Is that some magical, annoying neighbor who always leaves his sprinklers on at night? Or is it like some cosmic puppet master who makes malevolent villains out of unsuspecting, weak-minded humans? 
or tricks people into believing solid evidence about the nature of life on planet Earth. You say that humans are 99% of their genetic makeup uh, with ch- share that with chimpanzees. Why, the devil must have made that up. And then he, go on, he goes on and quotes, he says, in October 2013, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia declared that yes, he most certainly believes in the existence of Satan. But why don't we see him? Well, and then he quotes, you know, it's curious. In the Gospels, the devil's doing all sorts of things. He's making pigs run off cliffs. He's possessing people and whatnot. And that doesn't happen very much anymore. It's because he's smart. What, what he's now doing is getting people not to believe in him or in God. He's much more successful that way. And then this author uh, concludes with this. Huh? What? The devil is smart? Like he has a degree in chemistry? He knows how to translate Sanskrit into Estonian? And he somehow gets people not to believe him? And the evidence of all this? Dot, dot, dot. This man Scalia, mind you, interprets the Constitution for the nation, declaring what is legal and illegal for millions of citizens. And he then concludes his paper by saying, but there's no such thing as the devil, just as there's no such thing as fairies, imps, or goblins. And Christians are buying in to this. Christians are buying into this worldview. And Peter is calling us to wake up. And he's calling us to know our enemy. And he's calling us to know that Satan is real. And that he's Loose and that he's prowling and that he's roaring and that he's seeking to devour. It's interesting in this text that he calls him our your adversary, your adversary. We see uh, this over and over in the in the Bible and in in Zechariah, Satan is called an adversary, an accuser Uh, in Job chapter one. Uh, Verse 9 through 11, we see him in this same role. It said, Then Satan said to the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? You've not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and increased the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So we see here that Satan is an adversary. He is an accuser. In Revelation, he's called the accuser. As well. That we see Satan alive and well all throughout history. And all throughout history, what he's trying to do is to create doubt. He's trying to create confusion. He's trying to disorder the work and the plan and the structures of God. Think about it. In the garden, what did Satan say to the woman? Did God not say? God doesn't want you to be like him. So take and eat. Satan's job was to disorder, was to cause chaos. Jesus was tempted by the devil. Jesus knew his father. He knew his father's will. And Satan came to Jesus trying to tempt him to do what? To disorder that, to not to do the father's will, to not to come and die, but come over here and Look at what all you can possess if you will just bow down. What does Jesus do? Jesus quotes the scripture. What does Job do? And I know that this is a little more complicated, but, but Job, as he's going through his doubts and his troubles and his frustrations and, and, and all of that, he never curses God and dies. He always, he, he's questioning, he's involved, he's... He's, he's moving throughout and God meets him there and restores him. 
What would have happened? What would have happened in the garden if Eve would have told the devil what God really said? <laughs> so Satan is around. He's, his work is the same. He is our adversary. He is accusing still. He is trying to cause chaos. He is trying to cause uh, disordering. He is trying to devour. And Peter, as he's writing to the Christian, in verse 9, he tells us, but resist him firm in your faith. And this word resist is not a passive word of sit on your couch and resist Satan. Sit on your couch and uh, uh, just be passive. But it's an active word. Stand firm. Stand up. You resist Satan. Go against the culture. Don't let culture come in and overwhelm you and cause you to doubt and cause you to lose your faith. Don't let persecution or or what may happen to you because you're going against the stream. Don't let that cause you to shrink back. Stand firm against this roaring lion. Don't abandon the truth. James tells us the same thing. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And what I want to ask you is this. Isn't that a scary thought? Peter doesn't call him a gerbil. He calls him a roaring lion. And then he calls us to stand firm and resist him to his face. What a scary thought. Now, I'm going to tell you a story that is going to get me kicked out of the uh, men's ministry committee. When I was growing up, uh, there was a family that lived across the street from us. And um, uh, it was a, a, a mom and her three girls that were my sister's age. My sister was five years older than I was. And uh, we spent Thanksgivings with them, Christmases with them, birthdays with them. Their father had been a youth pastor, was tragically killed in a car wreck when the girls were all really, really young. And so... Our families just kind of melded together and we hung out all the time. The only problem for me was that they had this ferocious dog that was about this big named Ruffles. And I was scared to death of Ruffles. And um, so... There were times that we had to go over there and my dad would know I was scared. And so my dad would say things like this, son, you don't run from Ruffles. If you run from Ruffles, he's going to chase you down and bite you. You know, you've got to act strong. You've got to you've got to be brave. And so when my dad, sure enough, I can remember clear as day being up on the porch, ringing the doorbell and I'm with my dad and here comes Ruffles. He would come from around back and up. I can vividly remember Ruffles. Climb up, barking, growling, and my dad just looked and it seemed like he just looked at the dog and it scampered away, you know, but I'm sure he said something to the dog. And sure enough, if I was with my father, nothing happened. He could call the dog down and the dog would flee from him. So one day, it was Halloween, and my whole family was over there. Uh, I don't know where, where I had been, and so, uh, you know, back then there was no cell phones, and so I was going over to uh, get with my family. And I, uh, I, I remember stopping at the front of the yard and wanting to yell like, hey, somebody come make sure Ruffles doesn't bite me. But instead of doing that, I'm like, nope, I'm going to do what my dad told me to do. I'm going to be brave. I'm not going to be scared of this dog. And I went up on the porch. Sure enough, here comes Ruffles. And I freaked out, jumped on top of the banister. There happened to be a mop in the corner. 
and shoved that mop down Ruffles' throat. And they came out and just thought it was the funniest thing what was going on. Now, I also have to say that there was another dog that lived next door to us that um, uh, once my dad had to get me out of a tree because the dog was chasing me. The problem is that I had the words of my father, but my father wasn't with me. As a young kid, in the face of ruffles, I had no power. I I didn't think I had any power. You see, as we think about Satan and him being a roaring lion, I think many times we think about how weak we are, how worn out we are from fighting, how scared, how we're not strong enough. And brothers and sisters, what I want to remind you of that we've been reminded of in this text is that God does call us to resist and to stand firm in our faith. But as he's doing this, he never calls us to stand alone. What does the scripture say? I will never leave you or forsake you. We are never in that situation that I was in. Where I just had the commands, but my father was not with me. We have the commands and the father with us. He has given us his spirit. His spirit indwells us as believers. And not only that, but he's given us the armor of God that you can go and read about. Part of that being his word, which is the sword, which contains the promises and the words of life and the encouragement for us to keep going. And he also has given us people around us to help us to stand, to point us to him so that we can lean one another together in his strength. He is with us. As we look through uh, the next couple of verses I think we just find some huge, huge points that we can find comfort in. The first one, look in verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And I think two things are kind of going on here. One is he is letting us know that we are not alone in the suffering that we were going through. These these folks in Asia Minor, they were not alone in the suffering that they were going through. And so it kind of normalizes it. This is a normal part of Christian life. This suffering, this persecution. So you're not alone. Take heart in that. I also think that we can we can look at this and we could go back up and look at that God has given uh, elders, God has given us one another, that we are to be together as a flock and to encourage one another. In verse 5, it tells us to clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, that you're not alone in this fight, that God has given us to each other to stand firm in the faith. Let's also look at verse 10. Now, to understand really uh, how this verse should stick out in our minds, uh, we have to know that our, our translation here um, misses the point just a little bit. And that is, is that my translation, the New American Standard, starts with after you have suffered a little while. In actuality, Peter, all, this, all throughout this letter, uses a word that we have translated but. And, and it's bringing out a contrast like this, but this, this, but this. And 
Peter has done that all throughout this letter. And he does it again here. He does it again here. And it says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are all in the world. But the contrast here, contrast, but after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And so you are suffering, you are suffering, but you're just going to suffer for a little while and then God's going to swoop in. Isn't this encouraging? I love it that he says a little while. Um, and, and I think when, when he says this, when Peter says this and is encouraging his readers, this is more like what James is talking about, that compared to eternity and compared to glory, that our life is like a vapor. And so he's encouraging us as we read this letter all throughout this letter to know that we have an inheritance. We have a reward. We have a, a future with God and it's going to be forever. And so one of the ways that we can be encouraged to resist the devil is to stand firm in your faith, just knowing that this suffering is only going to last a little while. And after a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Man, I love these two phrases. This reminds me of the, the golden thread of uh, uh, Romans chapter 8. Those he called, he foreknew. Those he foreknew, he predestined. Those who predestined, he also glorified. That golden thread that we have there in Romans chapter 8. We also see this at the beginning of this book. Peter has his own way of communicating this. And in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Notice verse 5. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. That this God has called you. This God will keep you through faith. And one of the things that um, I also want you to see from this. Jump down to, to verse 11 and then we'll go back up to verse 10. I love it when the biblical authors kind of, uh, it's, it's almost like they get full of, of who God is and they just kind of have to spew out the doxology, just spew out something here. And Peter kind of does that. To him, to this God, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And I love it that he uses the word dominion here. It is in direct contrast to Satan who has dominion only in this world and his dominion is on a leash. Think about this for a moment with me. Think about this. God takes Satan's plans and notice what he does. So God has called here in this text persecution, suffering from Satan. Look back with me in chapter 1. You'll remember this in verse 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So this suffering, this persecution, 
And it says, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what Peter is saying here, Peter is taking the same context, the same suffering, and is saying that God is using this for his glory and for your benefit. That even the plan of Satan to cause you to doubt and to devour you, that God is even using that for his glory. If you don't believe that, look over at chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that for the purpose that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory in God rest on you. Again, we see God's dominion that even Satan is under this dominion. And God uses the plans and ploys of Satan for our glory or for his glory and for our good. Now jump back up to verse 10 and look at what this great God who has dominion over everything is promising us. He himself will perfect confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And we can rejoice in this. We can, we can exercise our faith knowing this promise of God. And we can stand firm in the midst of persecution because we know that God is going to do this in our life for those who place their faith and hope and trust in Him. Now, the question you should be asking is what? I ask it this way. Does this lion have any teeth? Does this lion have any teeth? Can the devil really devour a believer? The word here for um, devour is the same word in the Septuagint in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that is used when the, when the fish swallowed Jonah whole, gulped him down. Can Satan really do this in the life of a believer? I think Satan is real. I think his power is real. But I also think the very essence, the definition of what it means to be a believer is that we have faith and that God gives us faith and that we are exercising faith. And so I believe that when a believer, a true believer really hears this, that what it does is it reminds them of, of who they serve, of who God is, and they exercise their faith by placing that faith in God who they can stand firm and resist the devil from whom, to whom, we can stand firm. Uh, look, if we had time, we'd go to Mark chapter 4, where Jesus is telling the, the parable of the seed. And notice that Jesus says this, that, that some seed fell on rocky places, and persecution and suffering came, and it choked out the seed. In other words, it was evidence, it was evidence that there wasn't real belief. Now what this doesn't mean, it does not mean that Christians don't wander. It doesn't mean that Christians don't fear. It doesn't mean that Christians don't doubt. 
In fact, this was written to encourage. It was written so that sheep would hear this and come back into the fold. It was written so that elders would take their responsibilities seriously. And as it says in Jude, to snatch some of them out of the fire, that the, that the church functioned properly to protect the sheep. It, so it doesn't mean that there's no fear, there's no doubt and these sort of things. But what it does mean that in the life of a true believer, even the very notion of, oh, God, I don't know if I have enough faith. Help me. Give me more faith is the very means that God uses to persevere you. Do You see that? The very thought that you would ask that question or to be worried about the condition of your faith proves that there's something inside of you that recognizes the need for something outside of you and that you can't do this on your own. And so even even the doubt of a believer draws him back into where we need to be, draws a believer where he needs to be and helps us to stand firm. To stand firm. It's vital that we know that we stand firm, not in our own strength, not in our um, ability to uh, uh, physically or emotionally or mentally um, do some kind of strong gymnastics, you know, where we can outwit or outmaneuver uh, Satan, but that we must know, we must understand that our strength is in the faith that we receive and exercising that faith, humbling ourselves under God, knowing who He is, trusting Him that He is at work and trusting Him that He cares for us. And so the two massive realities that we must remember is number one, that Satan is real and he is roaring and he is seeking to devour. And number two, number two, that as believers we are called to stand strong and to be sober and to be faithful. Don't get intoxicated with the ideas and the things of this world and be asleep to the realities of what are going on. It is dangerous. And that you were called as a believer, that phrase that Peter uses, you were called, you were called to stand firm so that your life would be on display to those around you about concerning the hope that lies within you. We are called to be salt. We are called to be light in a culture that is going in an opposite direction. And by God's mercy and grace that I pray that as we stand firm, only through the faith that God supplies and the grace that He gives us, that some may look at that stand and see the presence of Christ in you and be drawn up into that so that they may too be taken out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you are so good. You are so good. God, we know that yeah, in these bodies, in this world, in this day and age, that there are so many things that are pushing against us. And that as Americans, we aren't facing yet um, hardcore persecution. But God, we see it everywhere. We see um, your word being uh, 
not only questioned, but just disregarded. We see uh, in some of the states in our country where um, churches aren't even allowed to meet, and yet other establishments are allowed to meet. Help us to wake up. Help us to be alert. Help us to be faithful. God, we can only do this because your son has died for our sins and reconciled us to you. And that we are sons and daughters of the King who reigns victorious and almighty forever and ever. And by that, for that, we are blown away. And it's in your son's name that we uh, give this service and this time to you. Amen.